Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 204 of the Intentional Growth Podcast. Today's guest's name is Xavier Helgeson, and he is the co-founder and co-CEO of Enduring Ventures, a long-term holding company. But before Enduring Ventures, Xavier co-founded a company called Better World Books, which was and still is an online book reseller. And it was the first ever B Corporation, which is a huge deal, by the way. B Corporations formally combined public interest goods with profit earnings throughout their business model. They're typically conscious capitalist companies, which you know I'm a huge fan of. And some B Corps you might recognize are Patagonia and Tom Shoes. And Better World Books baked their mission and vision into all aspects of the company, which included raising over $20 million for global literacy and donating tens of millions of books while also maintaining double digit growth for 15 years in a row. The company's rapid growth led them to taking on investors and then ultimately selling the business to a charity, which by the way is unique in itself, but it also happened to be the charity that was founded by the creator of Amazon's Alexa. Xavier's gonna tell plenty of that story. And before founding Enduring Ventures, Xavier also founded Zola Electric, a solar energy company concentrated in Africa, where he raised $100 million to make solar energy and storage affordable to the mass market via prepaid plug and play technology. Yeah, as you can realize, Xavier's kind of a badass. And so Xavier today is going to be describing his experience aligning the charitable causes with his company's mission at each stage of starting, growing, and selling a business. And it truly exemplifies the notion that good business is not just good marketing. Xavier hits home in today's episode the power of building a company while intentionally linking it to the life that you want to live. The underlying values and mission of a business can range from charity work to financial stability, and Xavier emphasizes the added value a business can bring by integrating that mission into the company's cost structure and future plans. I couldn't be more excited to have Xavier on the show because he's just an absolute amazing example of what being intentional means and having intentional growth and what he's learned growing and selling these companies that have conscious capitalism and just really impact investing at the heart of its core and what he's learned and how he wants to help others do the same. If you want to see how well your company's current strategies are long are aligned with your long-term goals, check out our two-minute multiple-choice assessment to get your intentional growth score that really takes what Xavier teaches and aligns all the things for your own situation. And then you'll also get our one-page intentional growth vision board that shows you how to capture all of your goals onto one page. After the 20 multiple-choice questions, the result will help you shift your mindset away from your annual income, shifting it to long-term value creation so that way you're going to have the freedom to choose to do what you want with the business. All you got to do is text the word intentional to 66866. You'll get an email. Then you'll take the assessment. You'll get your vision board and then you'll be off on your way. So that way you can create more freedom, have more choices and be more intentional. So without further ado, here's my interview with Xavier Helgeson. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value. 
giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Xavier, how are you doing? Wonderful. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm like you and I were just uh, kind of getting a little caught up uh, before the recording, and I was just saying how excited I am to uh, have you on the show. the The podcast has been renamed Intentional Growth, and what you have done uh, in various ventures uh, seems to appear to have a lot of intention behind it. And well, I guess you'll be able to shed some light on that. But you know, I think Xavier, you were just telling me the story about you teaching a class at Oxford. So maybe just kind of go back, and I'd love to hear. I'd love to have the listeners hear that again, and just give us a background of like how you decided to start going, whether it was just on, on purpose or or by accident, becoming an entrepreneur, and then how you ended up teaching that class at, at Oxford. Well, thanks, Ryan. Uh, yeah, it's funny I brought that up. I don't I don't often talk about that Oxford class, but it was uh, it was a, it was an awesome experience, and so maybe I'll. I'll start there and then I'll go back to how I became an entrepreneur in the first place. Um, so, so I ended up at, at Oxford. I, I got a scholarship called the Skull Scholarship um, after I'd uh, started my first company, worked on it for about eight years. Um, it's a scholarship funded by the Skull Foundation for, uh, for socially minded entrepreneurs to get their, their MBA and kind of think about the world's big issues and then go, go try to work on some. And so I had ended up being chair of the, uh, the Oxford uh, Entrepreneurs Network while I was there. And um, one of the things I saw was that a lot of people had an interest in, in entrepreneurship, but they didn't really even understand how it could all work, how they could kind of um, design the, the life they wanted to live and the, um, you know, the, the work they wanted to do. And I think it had even been the start of what um, I, I consider kind of the fetishization of entrepreneurship, where, um, you know, there's this one very particular path of, I want to be like the Airbnb founder, or I want to be Jeff Bezos. And <laughs> so I have to, I have to raise lots of venture capital. I yeah, have to kill yeah. myself for a decade or so. And, uh, you know, I have to just hustle it out. And so I taught this class called entrepreneurship on purpose, which was kind of my philosophy on it at the time, which was to be intentional about, you know, the life you want to live. Um, so what, what are your priorities? What's important there? Um, what do you care about in the world beyond, you know, beyond your own, you know, personal enjoyment? Like, yeah, you may love to mountain bike, but like, what, what, what of the world's problems kind of uh, get you? And which ones do you feel? And which ones do you feel like you, you can do some, you know, you could do mm -hmm. something about with the right, the right tools. Um, you know, sometimes I ask people to imagine that you, you've already started something and you've already sold it for a billion dollars. And now you, it's time to set up that charitable foundation. Like what, what's it for? What, what would you, what would you what's set that up for? And, it, and if, if, if that issue matters enough to you, why do you have to wait for, for that kind of one in a million outcome to, to start doing something? And so it was kind mm -hmm. of that intersection of, of your life um, and you're you know, trying to do some good in the world. And then of course, what, um, what is the economic engine of all that? You know, I think, I think in some ways entrepreneurship is, is an economic engine that can let you, uh, Certainly live, live the life you want to live, work with the people you want to work with, tap dance to work every day if you're lucky enough. And I think you can literally engineer the, the entire life that you want with it. It, re it I mean, really is. It, it, really is. it really is one really of like it. the greatest insights in the world. And, 
you know, you and I as, as Minnesota guys to get to the second part of the question. So I grew up in very rural northern Minnesota. There are more moose than people in the county I grew up in. You know, we had people snowmobile to school because um, <laughs> it, <was, laughs> yeah. it was it was faster than taking the school bus. <laughs> Walk in smelling like gas. Yeah, totally. Oh, Smell, smelled like a two-stroke <laughs> engine. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> and uh, and they were like the cool kids, like the guys who could jump it over the snowbanks to arrive at class on time. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Yeah, so I, you know, I wanted to get out of the small town pretty early. I was, I was a computer nerd, and so I was always trying to buy, um, I was trying to buy stuff for my Amiga computer and like games and bigger hard drives and whatever else I, I could get my hands on. And so I think the first thing, I mean, I was mowing lawns when I was eleven or twelve. I, I leased a mini golf course when I was fourteen. I started building websites when I was sixteen. So I always kind of had the small time hustle going on. Mm-hmm. And then I had a startup in college too, uh, which which had a little bigger idea, which was like to build these these kind of hyper local college websites. So we had, I think we had eighty percent of Notre Dame on our website in uh, would have been year two thousand two thousand one. So uh, I learned a lot uh, doing that, and I coded most of that myself. So so I learned a lot about oh, cool. just how to how to build stuff yourself and like how to just have the tools and do it. <laughs> And, uh, and so I think the dot-com crash was very formative for me because I was going to go kind of raise money and start, um, you know, grow this college thing and then everything just cratered, you know, and I was, um, maybe a little naive even about how you would go, uh, raise money for, for something like this or what the bigger strategy would be. And, and so I ended up, um, I had this distinct idea in my mind that I was going to do something that was like social good for the world. I was always very politically and socially kind of active. And so that was, that was always a, a, a huge priority for me. And um, I, didn't, I had no idea what it was. And then this, this kind of golden opportunity just, just hit me over the head, which was um, my, my friend, uh, uh, my roommates had left after college and left a lot of stuff. And so my friend and I were, were the guys who stick around the college town when everybody else goes to the real job oh my god totally me i mean i see for like an extra two weeks i was like in denial that i had to go <laughs> to the real world oh two weeks <laughs> we stayed for two years <laughs> <laughs> all right you, you got you tell me for sure <laughs> so we were we were playing ultimate frisbee we were hanging around the college town and um we uh we sold these textbooks and I remember him asking me if I knew anywhere on the internet you could sell textbooks. And I was like, oh, half.com. I heard, I heard people are on there. And so he posted on him half.com and was like, dude, I just sold $300 worth of textbooks overnight. Like, this is crazy. And so all of a sudden, he and I were, were, were obsessed with getting textbooks. We would, you know, we would get them from all our friends and try to buy them even from like, there was a donation bin at the library. We tried to buy that. And we realized that like these books that, wouldn't sell for anything to the bookstore. You could sell for $50 on the internet. It was a highway robbery with the bookstore, man. I got my favorite story, Xavier is like, so I went to a Catholic school and, uh, Oh, I did, I went, I did too. I was, Which one? 
uh, St. John's University. Oh, of well, like of course. I love St. John's. Yeah, so I went to Notre, da- <laughs> Notre Dame. as was my Catholic yeah, school. I went to uh, Notre Dame in Australia, actually, oh, for a semester. Yeah, we, we had an exchange um, I, I went to a couple classes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was the beach was across the street so i got a little bit of reading done but the, so the i was in the bookstore and like i i could only see the opportunity that you guys saw because i like i was returning like two thousand dollars worth of books and they gave me a hundred bucks that i was going to go buy bush light with and then and the guy next to me was returning his, was trying to sell his bible and they were like <laughs> sorry i'm like what well, did that just do they have a new version of the bible that he can't get his um, almost full refund back oh so funny oh, just a total escape. it's so absurd and so yeah so we found out that on the internet you know it it only takes one buyer in the whole country to, to, you know, use that old edition for class. And even a lot of professors were starting to say, yeah, you can use the old edition. And honestly, students are, I know this is a deep secret, but students are lazy sometimes. And so <laughs> we, we would get $150 books thrown in the, in the donation bin. And so anyway, that was what we, the business we started was basically partnering with charities to run college book drives. And so what we realized was that a bunch of people would just give their books if there was a good cause and um, they didn't have to stand in line. And, um, you know, we, cause we didn't really have any money to buy textbooks. We didn't, we didn't know which ones to buy anyway. It turns out there's like these closely guarded pricing guides that, that the big textbook companies have um, where they have actuaries going through every single textbook and, you know, assessing supply and demand. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we started this company called Better World Books, and the original thing that got it started was just a college book drive. Like our startup cost was $35, and our first book drive got $20,000 of, of sellable books just, just from the campus. Um, and so I spent a lot of my early 20s like barnstorming college campuses, which was an awesome way to spend your early 20s, and uh, <laughs> setting up college book drives. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about engineering the exact world that you want. You get, you, get, you checked a lot of boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it does exactly it. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, wait a second. I get to say, I get to help the world. I get to go to college campuses. I get to make a bunch of money and people, yeah, just the check, 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 check. <laughs> yeah. So, cause you've got multiple ventures that have common themes in them. And I want to get into some of the mechanics of what you did with these companies too. But like, I'm curious, like in this timeline, you know, you talked about the, the, the class at Oxford and then there's, you know, you, you've got in, I don't know if better world books was the triple bottom line, but you know, you got some of these conscious capitals, not of these themes that I want to dive into and where in your process as, in, as an individual and entrepreneur, did you start saying, okay, here's how I'm going to get the economic engine and the life that I want. And how did you line all those up? I mean, like where did that start to, to formulate? Well, you know, I was always, um, it's really funny, but I always just kind of had faith that I would be okay economically. And in so Mm -hmm. in a a weird way, I, I decided that, you know, I, I, what I valued really highly was independence and probably what I valued second most highly was, um, was working on something that I felt in some way that was, was something bigger than just like a hustle, you know, or, or a quick Mm -hmm. way to make quick money. And so I think that I, you know, I really came of age as a business person, not as like, how do I become a millionaire as quickly as possible? But how do I, how do I just build something? Like, how do I build something that works and that, um, that, that grows? 
And so Better World Books, I mean, we bootstrapped it to, I think it was 16 million in revenue four years after we started. Just awesome. selling books on the internet. And um, we, uh, you know, and Better World really, its revenue grew, I think, for 15 straight years. It's still a pretty good sized business. We, we, just, um, uh, we just sold it actually to the most perfect possible place it could land, which is a charity called the Internet Archive that uh, is, is endowed by a guy who sold his company to uh, Amazon in, uh, I think, 99 for stock. Um, he actually sold Alexa to Amazon, <laughs> which is a whole other fascinating story. Whoa. Um, and Alexa at that time was a web crawler. So it actually still is a giant web crawler, but, um, but they took the brand and put it on a, an entirely different product. And so Alexa, uh, very few people know this bit of trivia. This, this will drive traffic podcast. Um, so Alexa uh, is actually named after the Library of Alexandria. And that was the original vision of the founder of the company who sold it to Alexa was that he was going to build the library of everything ever. And so then when he sold his company, he um, talked about engineering your purpose. So he, part of his deal with Bezos for selling his company was that six months after Amazon scrapes the data, it has to give it to him for free so that that data can be made as part of a public library that anybody can access of the internet. And so Whoa. so if you ever use the Wayback Machine to, to view an old website that's no longer up, that's all powered by that deal and that conversation, which, which was essentially, we're going to build an archive of every website ever, forever. And then on top of that, every book ever, every LP ever, every, every everything ever. Um, which which the Internet Archive is is busy doing now, twenty years after that deal happened. So the guy that you sold the, the charity that you sold to that started that charity is the guy that is all about this. Yeah, yeah. So this so this guy yeah. who had founded Alexa um, basically endowed the the charity with his fortune, and then uh, Better World Books uh, ended up as part of it because we uh, we we'd set up this mission around uh, around literacy at. at at, at the point we sold it, we had partnerships with about 8,000 libraries. So we were not only getting books from college campuses, but we were getting them from big and small academic public libraries, um, something like 35 million books a year coming in the front door in, in the business. And that's a great thing to have if you want to build a library of every book ever, because um, some of those books can then be digitized and stored in the library rather than resold. Isn't that amazing? I, I mean, I just could only think, you know, it's so funny is every is like on this topic. And I think it probably has a lot to do with why I do a podcast and why I listen to so many books. But back when I was like in elementary school, I was a terrible student because of my energy and ADD. And I was like, you know, I just want my superpower to be able to download a book into my head, <laughs> like all books. And like, you know, we're close. I'm like, it's probably going to happen someday. But like, that's, it's amazing what you can have with all that knowledge. I mean, and like it, in maybe this ties into, you know, kind of the, the book for a book and what you're doing. Cause I, like, I, when maybe some context behind this area, some of these questions is like, there's so many entrepreneurs that I've interviewed over a couple hundred interviews and all the, the, the people that I work with that, they start their business. I'd say a general theme is they start their business with a trying to solve a problem or they like their employees. I mean, there's very few people that are just total like cutthroat capitalists that are their founders, right? They, they start for some reason. I don't think they articulate it as well as you do or you have, or certain people do, which ends up with, you know, the regret after they sold, cause they sold the wrong person that did the wrong thing with their baby that, I mean, like, look at the mission of the people that you're sold to. Like that, that's amazing. Right. And it makes you feel good. Right. So like, 
how did you back into that? And like, where did your mind start to shift as you were, you know, just going from college to college towards, okay, now I've got this economic machine that's, you know, 16 million in revenue. Like, how did you start to build the infrastructure to make sure that you got what you wanted, what you just described? So I think that, um, I think it's a really important question. And it's, it's something where like a lot of businesses, a lot of executive teams, they kind of get their arm twisted into doing mission and values, you know, or mission, vision, yeah. values, right? Whatever you want to call that kind of holy trinity set. But, you know, I think really not, you can't only get your, your mission and your vision and your values down in some piece of paper because nobody's going to see that. Like you got to live them and you got to, mm-hmm. you know, and you've got to take the time to think about that. Like, I think most entrepreneurs do have, you know, do have values behind what they do. They're, they're creative people almost by definition. And even if their values are like, I want to, you know, I want to, you know, make a bunch of money so I can, you know, I can be independent and live the life I want to live. Like, I think, I think that the step that I don't see all of them take is to say, okay, well, even if that's the value of the company, like, think about how other people who work for the company might also want that. And so, mm-hmm. so it, if you do have something set up just to be an economic engine, it's okay. But, um, but think about how you can share the wealth then with more employees. And there's all sorts of good thinking on that. And, you know, everything from profit sharing plans to open book management to employee stock ownership plans. There's, there's, there's so much good stuff about how you can share the wealth and then line, align your employees to, to make you more wealth, you know, and if you do have a, broader vision beyond that, whether, you know, you believe in a more sustainable food system or, um, you know, you name it in Better World Books' case, um, we actually had a lot of pressure early to get that right uh, because we were a for-profit business going out and soliciting donations, right? So that could be viewed in a negative light or a positive light. And so we pretty early had to say, hey, if we're going to do this right, if this is going to be sustainable, we have to align ourselves with impeccable nonprofits who deliver on what we're promising, which is that if someone drops a book in this box, that we're gonna we're we're gonna increase literacy around the world. And so we partnered up very early on with a group called Room to Read, which is now a really internationally known nonprofit. Uh, another one called Books for Africa, which is um, we we were their biggest funder for many years, may may still be. Um, and and together we were the leading donor of college textbooks to Africa. So. It's, ama- wow. it's amazing what you can do when, uh, you know, you get, um, uh, you know, you really get specific and say, hey, this has got to all hold together. This can't just be something where we say we fund literacy and then someone asks how and you say, well, we give a little money to this charity. You know, it's got to be a lot more, uh, a lot more specific and intentional than that. Um, and I guess I think about that even more, uh, you know, with what I'm doing today, uh, you know, what we call it enduring ventures, and the goal is is to be the, you know, to be the buyer uh, of businesses for for people who really don't want to sell, uh, you know, who want who want their business to, uh, you know, to continue on to not be something that's kind of, you know, bought and resold, bought and resold, stripped down for profits, you know, but but to have a long term horizon. And uh, the first thing we do when we buy a business is is we we restart from the values from day one and say why does like, why should anyone care about this business? Why, why is it here? And, and how do we make sure that our customers know what these values are, that, that it resonates with them? Um, because also that's, that's mission insurance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had a, uh, 
we had an investor early on who was a very social focused investor who said, the reason I'm investing in you guys is because it doesn't matter who buys the business, they can't take the mission out of it. It's, it's, it's baked into the supply chain of the business in the partnerships with libraries and nonprofits, and it's baked into the customer base with, uh, you know, with them knowing the brand and, and choosing it. I like how you said that the mission and, and vision is baked in. It's, it's really interesting. Cause like, like you, you can, it's hard to like, you know, <laughs> especially coming for your computer guy. <laughs> it's like, you know, I like so many people want to like make an algorithm out of this and quantify it, but like, it's really, truly like sometimes intangible, right? <laughs> like you can't really see that stuff on the spreadsheet. Like you have to experience it in order to understand it. No, you really, you really do. And you know where you see it in the spreadsheet, I'll be honest, is you see it in outsized profits in the long run and outsized growth in the long run. And I think that's something a lot of spreadsheet focused uh, business people don't get because it's really easy to measure trailing earnings. It's really easy to measure the value of assets. It's really hard to measure brand value. The and, uh, you know, the place in your customers and employees' hearts and minds where your business lives. And, you know, that is, that is truly the, the thing that differentiates uh, the really great businesses from, from somewhat mediocre ones in the long run. So let's, uh, uh, it, which I agree with you too, the wholeheartedly, because I've had uh, Alexander, the CEO of Conscious Capitalism on my show. And just after reading that book, you know, the, 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 the crazy like, what is it? Cognitive dissonance or whatever. I'm looking for the right word, the paradox that I had in my head over my life is like money, 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 but you can't do good with it. And now over the last, you know, 10 years, their conscious capitalism movement, they're showing that you can care about all stakeholders. And I think especially in right now, we're starting to realize where the cracks in the foundation of the economy when there's just debt loads everywhere and you're having to sacrifice stakeholders because you can't play the long game right now. And so like, when you like when you were at the business, when you were doing the book business, like how did you? Ex- what kind of exploration did you do to, to figure out how to mechanically make this work and to do it from the point where like you can hold those two beliefs in one, right? Where like I can do good without sacrificing my profits, but also make money because otherwise you're going to constantly have to go find money from other people that are still your owners at that point. So like, how did you mechanically put that thing together? And what are the different things that you explored? Yeah, you're right. It's a really perceptive question. And that took a while. Um, so one thing we did early is we were, we were literally the first B corporation. So we were the first one to sign. Were you really? Yeah. So we, we signed uh, the declaration of interdependence and, uh, I don't know what that was, maybe 2005 or something like that. And so, you know, I'd, I'd heard Jay, the founder of B Corp, speak at an event before they had launched and was just like, oh, that's what we are. Because we had, we had also mm-hmm. been looking for like, okay, what, you know, other than a few companies in natural foods um, and then, you know, seventh generation, a few companies like that, there really hadn't been uh, a lot of companies. There hadn't been a way to kind of classify this thing that we, that we were. And we had people ask us all the time, are you a nonprofit? No, no, we're a business. And I think what we, uh, we made some mistakes early on. And, and then we, here's the funny thing. We actually shared too much with our uh, nonprofit partners. So we, so we signed up for revenue shares that seemed uh, like they made sense uh, when we were collecting books at one campus. But then we, when we were collecting them at a thousand campuses and shipping a lot of those books across the country, and, you know, we need an organization to organize all that. We had to look and say, well, the absolute number has gone way up, but the share actually has to be, uh, you know, more reasonable. 
And so I think in some ways it took us a little while to say, not even what is the right level of profit, but to say, okay, what is the value that our, our partners are providing us? And let's like get as, you know, let's get as specific as that. Like if they were just, if they were running these book drives themselves, how much would we pay them? And, mm, you know, interesting. Yeah. so yeah, like a cost of goods and just say like, this is exactly what would be my pa- in my balance sheet, right? <laughs> exactly. And so that was what we ended up doing was building in our partners as a cost of goods sold. And so, so we just said, look, there's, there's, oh, cool. there's clear part of value. So rather than, you know, we'll donate X percent of profits, well, profits can be manipulated in all sorts of ways. And so, you know, what can't be manipulated is cost of goods sold. That's just baked right in. And so um, that was that was the fundamental engine that we were able to uh, donate over twenty million dollars and still stay profitable every uh, every year was was by doing that. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, because you, I mean, you're literally tracking what, like, you know, if you had that cost. I mean, so let's go back for the listeners that are not familiar with B Corps or not familiar with the triple bottom line. Can we hear it from you um, on what those actually mean and how mechanically they work? Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll take those separately. So, so B Corp, I really like almost every company should do it now. Um, you can easily, you know, sign up as a B Corp now as a Delaware corporation. So just to be clear, B Corp is a, a C corporation or an LLC or even an international company. Any one of those could be a B corporation. Basically, what you have to do is two things. So you have to put in your articles of um, association or incorporation that uh, you'll take all stakeholders' interest into account. And that's very, very important from a corporate governance perspective because it, it protects the board of directors from being sued if, for example, they turn down a higher financial offer because um, maybe the business is better independent or because there's another, another offer who will... Um, keep the mission intact, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And the second thing B Corp is about is transparency. So you take a, um, you take a big test on, on all these different metrics. It's not expected that you're going to do everything for everybody, but it's just trying to understand where, you know, how structurally have you set up the company? Do you have uh, employee profit sharing, for example? Do you provide benefits mm-hmm. to your employees? Those, those sorts of things. And then your, your assessment on this is made public. And so, what this does is it, is it gives you a kind of uh, transparent score to say, no, we're not just talk here because anybody can market anything. We actually submit ourselves to a third party to verify that we, um, you know, we do what we say we do. And so that was, that was kind of the original thesis of B Corp was that it, you know, it's, it's good, good businesses, not just good marketing. Um, but there's some very, very profitable B Corps uh, out there. And uh, I, I forget the name of this one, but I think now there's a few public ones as well. So absolutely, you can still be super profitable. I know a lot of B Corps that are very, very Is profitable. Is it Patagonia B Corp? Yeah, Patagonia's B Corp. Um, that's, that's a very valuable business. So what was the bet? What was the? Isn't there's tax benefits too? I, 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 it spaces me right now but like, not, because there's a benefit for doing what you're doing, right? Not really. There's not an explicit tax benefit. Um, there are some specific benefits in some specific places, but I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't do it as a as a tax trick. I would say I shouldn't call it a trick, but like you know, there's yeah, I know you mean. there's there's stuff like um, you know employee stock ownership programs that have huge tax benefits that are worth you know, worth figuring if that's a route you want to go down. But, but B Corp really is, it's a, it's a way to brand what you're doing. And it's a way to also be a part of a community of businesses that are doing the same thing. So one interesting knock-on benefit, especially for small businesses, is I've seen a lot of them get a lot of business from that community. 
because people in that community oh, yeah. are saying, well, you know, I would rather do my incorporation for a B Corp, for example, which is there's a, there's a company in Delaware that's a B Corp that does incorporations. And so mm-hmm. it is a way where, where people, the conscious business community can find service providers who, who also um, you know, check that box. So then what is the definition of the triple bottom line in your perspective, from your perspective? Well, you know, I'll be honest. I, I don't love the, the triple bottom line uh, nomenclature uh, because it's, uh, you know, the, the traditional triple bottom line idea, and it's a nice idea, is that you don't just have one bottom line of profits. You have, um, you know, three bottom lines of environmental, social, and, and uh, economic uh, generally, or sometimes people will, will, you know, choose those differently. You know, I, I think it's um, I think it's a useful tool to to kind of open people's eyes to it, but I think it also creates a lot of controversy, if I can be honest. Because um, mm-hmm. when you're managing the business, let's be honest, most businesses that say triple bottom line, they have a monthly review of their profits, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's like there's a triple bottom line, but there's a pie chart, and those three have different slivers. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and it's and it's so Importance I or whatever. so I I find it to be much more meaningful to make whatever environmental and social commitments you want to make, just make them, make them publicly, make them to your customer base, and then be transparent about how you're doing or not doing on them. And um, you know, and and then you don't have to say to people, well, we have an environmental bottom line. Well, I mean. He took that to his logical extreme. You'd be out there, you know, cleaning the ocean every day rather than running your business. And you know, so it's it's, it's to some degree, I think that if you you know if you're saying, well, we're going to be a carbon neutral business, great. Like make that statement on your website, tell all your customers about it, build it in your marketing, and uh, and then actually be transparent and and do the homework to see if you're really uh, if you're really living up to it. What I find is interesting too is like as you like. I'm going back to like, you know, when you were in the business and you are lining this economic machine of making profit and that like, it makes so much, honestly, that was the clearest I've ever heard anybody describe it to me is like, yeah, you just built it into the cost of goods. So you can actually financially report and predict all this stuff. Yep. Like makes sense. Makes sense. Right. Like that, like you just put what was important into the cost of goods. So therefore every time you sell, you know exactly how much is going out to the people that you have deemed important in. So like, you know, if you're putting the, uh, the, you know, the desire for, well, not desire, maybe it's not the right word, but like you, you have to build an economic machine, right? Like you have, to, if you ever read uh, the book, it's called, uh, um, God, it's, it's like pulling people in through the generating profits, right? You, you have supplied a good or service to the economy that people have deemed important and you are doing what you will with the profits, but you have to have a sustainable business to accomplish your social or environmental goals, right? You can't, because like before the motto was charity, charity begs people for money. People that make money don't care about anybody else and they give it to charity, right? Yep. Like, but you've combined, <laughs> you've combined those in a way that, that like you said, the, the generated, the, the excess for profits over the long term happens when you do that. How do you, like, how, how did you as an entrepreneur, not, did you ever get criticized of like, oh, you're using this for branding and you're not actually doing it? Or like, you know, because like, because there's so many, technical you know, or perceived conflicts with those two, how did you describe that to the world and how did you live that? Absolutely. You know, and it's funny. And one of the, um, one of the first press pieces we got, we had on Better World Books was on all places, it was on Marketplace, on NPR. And 
you know, we, we were kind of used to getting puff pieces about us. Like, isn't this great? These, these guys are, you know, <laughs> promoting literacy around the world. And this, like, you know, this was, I was actually a very critical segment. And they brought somebody on who knew nothing about our business. They were like, oh, well, I for-profit shouldn't, uh, you know, it's really tricky business to work with nonprofits to collect donations, blah, blah, blah. You know, why don't they just pay people for the books? And, and so it was kind of this, um, it was definitely a wake-up call for us to, to say, hey, we have to, um, you know, we have to stand and be proud of, of what we're doing here. And the way we're going to address this is with transparency. It was amazing how well transparency works. Because once you just actually said what the deal was, <laughs> then, then everybody, like, people could make their own opinion on it, but they, but they didn't have to work with you if they didn't, you know, if they thought the charity wasn't getting enough money or whatever, they, they certainly didn't have to keep working with you. You know, one other aligning tool, and this is um, actually the other, the other major business I founded before, um, before Enduring, Enduring Ventures. So, um, so after Oxford, I, um, I was chairman of the bookselling company. Um, I started this business in Africa because I'd, I'd spent a lot of time in Africa through, through our literacy work to, to bring solar to the mass market in Africa. Uh, so the idea was basically to take the way prepaid mobile phones had swept across uh, the developing world and bring that to small uh, solar power systems uh, so that people could pay for energy a little bit at a time uh, as, as they use it. And so that, that business is, um, that business we raised a ton of venture capital because kind of was necessary. Um, it was, it's a hardware business. We finance our customers. I, I kind of knew that was the bargain from the beginning. And so- How did you, maybe you're, sorry to interrupt, but you're, you might get into this, but so you raised like, what was it 70 or hundred million or something like that? And, and I don't know if you're going to get into like when you take money from people, they can tell they 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 tend to have a voice. Oh, they, <laughs> so I don't know how you certainly do, <laughs> certainly do. Um, yeah, so I mean, we raised uh, over a hundred million dollars in equity alone, and fifty million dollars in debt, and six six rounds of financing. Um, so certainly, half of my job in that business as CEO was was raising money. You know what I what I felt, um, and we can come back to the pros and cons of venture capital, um, but. Um, that was extremely mission driven for me because not only we were recreating a business, we were creating an industry. And so if you look today, um, you know, the average Tanzanian in, in Arusha, Tanzania has probably five pretty decent companies they can choose from who will supply them a finance solar system that'll, that'll work pretty well. And that was, that was, and probably 80% of them have a solar panel on their roof if they don't have an electrical grid connection. And that's so cool. And that was not the case when, when we got there, I actually, I got to take a trip to Bangladesh, um, which, which had a very successful solar program and was just shocked to see half the houses had solar panels on them. And I kind of, you know, I, I, I felt like I'd seen the future and came back. I was like, okay, this could totally happen in Africa. It's just gotta, gotta go do it. Mm -hmm. And so I think what, um, if I can be honest about that business, I surrendered myself a bit to, you know, to the fate of venture capital um, almost in day one for that business because I just knew there was no other way to do it. But I felt like it was something that I wanted to work on that was going to be, you know, an incredible growth opportunity for me and, um, you know, and, and something good for the world. Uh, so, you know, I, um, I honestly, venture capital, I think when people have bad experiences, it's mostly because they don't understand the deal. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> yeah, they don't understand what they're. Yeah, they, I I can see that wholeheartedly. There is um, the deal is not we're going to invest in your company for you to build a sustainable, profitable business over a long period of time. That is not the deal. <laughs> the deal is we've been given some money uh, by our by our limited partners, and the only way that we make them money and that we make because our business is so risky and we're gambling so much money, the only way we really make that money is by the power law, which is that every investment we make has to return our entire fund. And so if I invest $4 million in you out of a $100 million fund, I am expecting there's a reasonable probability that that will turn into $100 million in, um, you know, in five to seven years. So if you know if you know that's the deal and you're you're building, you know, the next great teleconferencing app or whatever you're building, like take venture capital and take your swing. Um, just don't don't expect that it's your company anymore, right? Because it's it's not. It's it's um, it's a sort of partnership <laughs> where uh, where you you and your venture capital investors are are taking a giant economic swing together. And, and make sure you get paid a decent salary to do it while you're doing it because because your upside will be, you know, highly variable and will be, uh, you know, they, they get their money out before you do. So uh, you, you just have to know the deal. So when you, and especially, the, and then they want, they want a liquidation event, right? And like, and to go back to maybe, because I know we're running short, we got about 10 more minutes left is, you know, whether it's the book business or the solar business and your desire to make an impact on the world, you've got money tied into this, where does it line up with, okay, I know at some point this has to transition and I want to think about it correctly. So we've got these five principles that we've created in our intentional growth framework. And the first one is knowing what you want. And the second one is understanding your financial targets and kind of tying those together. So that way you have the ability to weigh out your options if you don't like the potential buyer, the potential dirt deal structure, whatever it might be, you know, what was your process on either of these to say at some point, I'm going to have to make sure that you're like, I'm assuming Xavier, you had like this vision of what you saw your company being like without you and maybe right. you did or didn't you right. explain how you kind of aligned all of those different things. Right. I think that, um, you know, since they were two very different businesses. So with the book selling business, better world books, we took one round of financing and even though our investors were amazing people, uh, we, you know, totally mission aligned, uh, we never should have taken money for that business. That should have just been a, a small cash flow in business that, that, that runs forever. That would have been, that would have been the optimal strategy for us. And in some ways we were kind of forced into, uh, you know, eventually making a sale of the business, um, uh, not in a bad way, uh, but but it would you know a second you take is it because they needed they needed their money yeah they, they wanted the money yeah yeah there's a you know there's a timeline attached to these things and sometimes there's in that situation there was a required timeline so we had more pressure in in some circumstances there's not a required timeline you know, did you do a PE recap then or what would you do uh, so we uh, so we basically sold to. Um, the the uh, the charity actually had some resources uh, mainly because its founder had made a bunch of money in technology so we were able to do a do a sale which uh, which yeah was um, you know what worked out for all parties so that was when you eventually sold the company and I'm curious on how you how you found them but like when you took on the investment curious if there was a triggering point that like I don't know if you guys were you know heavy in in needed cash to to bring on an investor or was that investor like what was it? Cause sometimes when people bring on investors, I mean, it's either a wealthy individual that's got very loose 
you know, terms and conditions or there's a professional investor, like a family office or private equity firm the first time before they eventually sell. I'm just yeah. curious on what was. Yeah. So I guess what I can say about that is that we, um, we didn't really need the money, but we, you know, we were still, our, there wasn't a lot of money in the bank account. We were reinvesting every dollar mm-hmm. we got into growth, but I don't think anybody, we had anybody saying, Hey guys, why don't you slow down to 25% growth a year? Then you won't need to raise any more money. You know, we were going at 40 or 50% a year. And then we, it was, we were in some ways exceeding our sustainable rate of growth. And so we just kept eating up capital rather than building a reserve. And I have a, po- a podcast titled growth consumes capital. <laughs> like uh, that's, I mean, it's people think it's just super easy. It's like, but somewhere the money's got to come from, right? Your receivables, your line of credit or your own pockets. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's very difficult to sustain that kind of growth on your own cash flow. It really is. It really, really is. Um, and they had a professional on their side um, who actually only did one deal with them because it was kind of a small fund, but she, she used to be at Intel Venture Capital and she was very, very good. So honestly, she got the better end of, of that deal and got, um, you know, got some terms in there that basically forced us into a liquidity event because they were concerned as well because they were essentially buying a minority stake in a founder-owned company that was profitable. Mm-hmm. And so they, they did need some forcing function to get their get their investment out. Um, I think if, you know, if I could do it all over again, um, I, you know, I've just learned so much since then about structuring. And I honestly, the thing that scares me the most for entrepreneurs, like there's a message entrepreneurs out there. If it's your first time doing a deal, a venture capital deal, a private equity deal, do not do it by yourself. You are not that smart. You think you are, you're not, (laughs) you're just not find, find someone, Uh... find somebody like me, Who's, who's been through every kind of permutation and, uh, you know, and have me help you. Some of us don't, we don't even cost money sometimes. We just want to help entrepreneurs. Wasn't it funny as here? Like I, I mean, I've been, I've, this is 200 plus episodes and I've been doing this for a living now for six years and I still wouldn't do it myself. Like that's, that's how crazy complicated the, the game could be. I mean, like, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. It really, it really, really is. And I, and honestly, I think selling a product, profitable business, there's even more moving parts there than venture capital. But venture capital, one term that you don't fully understand can just nail you. I mean, it can absolutely change the future of your business. And so if you don't, if you're not fluent with all those terms, not only knowing what they mean, but knowing uh, why they're there. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, um, one, one thing we did with the solar company is we actually uh, wrote our own term sheet. This is one thing I learned from one of my entrepreneurial mentors was so he writes his own term sheet. It's a fair one. It's not, it's not you know, uh, tilted too much in either direction, but it's one where he knows all the terms. He's comfortable with all of them. If anything, it's a bit entrepreneur friendly. And then when he raises money from venture capital, he says, well, if you don't like the terms, change the price. And so he just basically says, look, there's, there's one variable here on my term sheet, which is the price. So please reflect in the price you'll offer for the shares, whatever, uh, whatever you think of these terms. Because a lot of what happens in traditional venture and private equity deals is they lead with the price and then they just grind <laughs> on the terms. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll pay you $200 million for your company, Xavier, but it's going to be over the next 2,000 years <laughs> at 0% financing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, 100% selling finance. Um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's, that's it. So I know, I know we're, running, we're running a little short here. So the, you know, how did you going back to kind of the, the, that that main theme of how did you determine that that charity was the buyer 
to continue the vision? I mean, was it, did you, did you take it to market on with a, with a investment banker? How did, you know, if you got any advice for the, like the, the listeners that are thinking about aligning all these things when they eventually transition, how did you, how did you, I'll, I'll, you know, connect those dots? Well, I've got, I've got two bits of advice on that, especially because now I've been on the buy side for a little while. And so I've seen a lot of different businesses, um, you know, and, and uh, how the founders are managing their transition. And so, you know, one thing I would say is, is if you are a founder or an owner, your number one job is to work yourself out of a job, even if you like your job. And that's, and that's the thing that I think, even if you love your business, you love what you're doing, at some point, somebody's going to have to take that over. And in a, you know, in a perfect world, you're coming to the office when you want, you're working on whatever projects you want, and, but there is somebody fully mm-hmm. capable there who is, who is some share in the upside. I think that's important too, uh, or multiple people who know how to do everything you know how to do. Um, and a lot of times you actually, as a founder, you just need to step out of the room for a while. You need to go on vacation for two weeks so that, um, you know, as we talked about kids, you know, if, if you're always there and you're always answering all the questions your kids ask you, they'll ask you 2000 questions a day. But if you uh, if you tell them, hey guys, you have to figure this out yourself. Um, you know, most of those questions get uh, get solved, and, and a lot of times founders or owners have such a big personality, they take up all the oxygen in the room, even when there's other smart, capable people who can uh, you know who can make decisions and can manage things maybe better than they can. One of the most successful guys I know still owns 100% of his company. He's been retired, I think, 13 years now. And he swears the smartest thing he did was, was stop going to work um, and, uh, and let his team take over. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, so on that side, I think, um, you know, I, I think it's very, very important because when someone wants to buy a business, if the business all revolves around you, then you aren't leaving when your business is sold. You're, you're locked up for another three to five years on an earnout trying to, which I don't even understand why you'd sell your business then. I do not even understand that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, usually it's because they they literally have to, and then by the time they get to the deal table and they they're going over those terms, it's like shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it, yeah. exactly. So we, you know, we did the private equity shuffle too when we were selling the business, and we certainly experienced how um, obnoxious that process is. Um, the the amount of um, Think, I think if I ever had to deal with a private equity firm again, I'd, I'd make them pay me by the hour to do the diligence. <laughs> Say, okay, I'm just going to bill you like a lawyer because I think... Yeah, put this into your dead deal fees. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you guys have a budget for this, so I'm just going to bill you. And uh, every time you ask me for another report, that'll be another $2,000. And it'll be amazing how quickly they would, <laughs> they would come to a decision or not. Because uh, so many private equity firms, they, they, they do, they just analyze things to death. And, and at a certain point, it just becomes paralysis by analysis. So, you know, I would say that often grit, the best acquisitions are actually obvious. You've, you already have a relationship with the acquirer. You've built that trust and that relationship over years. I mean, we knew the Internet Archive for uh, probably almost a decade at that point. We'd, done, we'd given them free books. We'd done favors for them. And so, you know, when we needed something to happen, like we had a clear faith. It was like, as long as we can figure out something that, uh, that takes care of all our stakeholders, like this is, there's no question this should be the home for this business. We're going we're gonna to build a legacy here. We're going to build the library of every book ever accessible on the internet. Like that's something that's never been done before. And so I think for us, um, as long as we could make the deal work, you know, that was, um, you know, that was, that was important. And, and honestly, my bankers were, were really, really good on that. 
and they, they put in the work to get there. So, so Xavier, the, the quick question on that is, cause like I've tried to describe this to lots of people. And I think if people have been following the show long enough, they'll, they'll, they'll have gathered it or if they've gone through our, our digital course or the boot camp, like the ultimate freedom in my opinion is when you have the ability to sit down and say, I've got 10 offers here. Here are my financial targets, right? Like this is how much I need the net at closing. Here's what I'm willing. Here's what I need personally. And then there's another list of here's the things that I want for the business and for my legacy and for my stakeholders. And then being able to cross-reference all those with the 10 different offers. Like, did you intentionally do that? Did you have the ability to analyze that? I think because then it's the ultimate goal to say, hey, I don't want to have this extra million bucks because they're going to destroy it and I'm going to get the extra million bucks, but they're not going to build a library of everything. I mean, yeah, come on. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And I, I think we did, you know, we did to some degree have that. Um, I mean, we hadn't built such a good business that I, I think if I could do it all over again, we would have built an even stronger business, um, you know, not, not even by being smarter, but just really just focusing on the fundamentals of the business more. Just, just really getting clear about the things we need to be really good at and building those things over the long haul. And, but, but that being said, we were a profitable business and uh, had a lot of customers who love us. And so, yeah, so it was nice to have a commercial offer and a non-commercial offer. But, you know, I mean, an investment banker never would have thought of in a million years of calling up the Internet Archive and see if they wanted to buy the business. That was, uh, you know, that was a, that mm-hmm. was a relationship that we developed. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't do that. Like, you know, you learn about people when just when you're working with them, whether they're the kind of people you want to keep working with. And I think to go through an acquisition process, um, you better you better like the people on the other side of the table uh, at the end of it, or there's enough places where it's going to fall apart because you're going to get in you're in an argument over some, you know, something. There's always something. <laughs> <laughs> it's people. It, it's, it's people, people right? It's people, and <laughs> and uh, yeah. So I think I think founders, um, you know, setting those financial targets is important. And I'd also even ask a deeper question: is ask why of the financial targets, like. Well, you know, will 8 million really make you 50% happier than 4 million? I don't know. You know, I, I feel like founders should always, to the extent possible, build a business where it would run perfectly and, and give them a lovely stream of earnings forever without, you know, without any need to sell. And then if, if for whatever reason they want to sell, I, I see a lot of founders sell just because they're stressed out because they haven't gotten themselves out of all the muck. Um, they're still so true. Isn't it funny, Xavier, when you like, when you really think about it, you're like, okay, so I get to pull myself out, make a more valuable business, have more choices and do what I want. Like why in God's name, wouldn't you do that? <laughs> it's, it's so true. It's real. It's, I think it, yeah. it's a different podcast for a different day, but I think it's a lot of, a lot of, you know, aff- desire for affirmation and ego and, or the, under, the, 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 the ability to not be, or, or not being aware that this is a thing, which is kind of the point of the show, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, re- I mean, I really, I really see it. I, I'm, I'm working with a business owner now who still answers the customer service calls in the evening and the weekends. And it's like, I can understand how that keeps you close to the customer, but man, that's, um, you know, that's, that's a heck of a lifestyle sacrifice to, uh, you know, to make at a certain point when there's, there's really no financial need to do that. It's just kind of, you know, I, I think I'm, and I know you talk about this a lot, but you know, a lot of business owners can really be penny wise and pound foolish when it comes, comes to this stuff, you know, plain, mm-hmm. plain accounting tricks, uh, rather than, you know, trying to show strong, consistent earnings, 
you know, not hiring that one or two more people who can actually show that the business runs without its uh, owner working 16 hours a day. Cause you're, you know, your market of potential buyers for the business, if the owner's working 16 hours a day is, is dramatically smaller. It's basically the only people yeah, who want you, that. Let me give you millions. Same job, <laughs> right? I was just say, let me give you millions of dollars for that stress. Yeah, let me <laughs> let me buy myself a terrible job. <laughs> yeah, I know we're over over the time limit, Xavier. It, it, you know, if there's, you know, maybe a, a two questions. Um, well, one is for you. Is one is the what does the word intentional mean for you? And then the other one is what are the best places to find you and learn more information about what you're doing? So the word intentional for me, um, well, it it, it I mean, it's it's such a great word. It's something I spend a lot of time on. You know, I try to wake up each day and and you know set my intentions for that day because it can be really easy to just dive into the fray of meetings and emails and phone calls rather than saying, hey, what is you know? I heard this great thing from another entrepreneur. Who said, what is the one thing I can do today that would make everything else easier or irrelevant? And I think that you know being intentional about that and then also being intentional about hey, my you know. Um, my kids are growing up fast. My, um, you know, my health doesn't take care of itself. Not just, not just have abstractly prioritizing those, but concretely prioritizing those usually with blocks in the calendar is, is, is a big thing for me. So in terms of where you can find me, uh, I'm absolutely terrible at Twitter, but you, but I'm the only Xavier Helgeson on the internet. So, um, if you can spell <laughs> no, my name, you, you can, you can find me on LinkedIn. I have a lot of people on LinkedIn. Um, Enduring.Ventures is my new website. If you are selling a business and you don't want to deal with uh, jerks, uh, give us a call. That's that's our new slogan. Um, <laughs> I love it. It's a it's a it's there, that's a real differentiator sometimes. <laughs> David, I am I'm so happy you came on the show, man. I had a blast. Okay, thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, I really appreciate you getting me out to your listeners. So thank you for everything you're doing. I absolutely loved that interview. I hope you did too, because I think the big takeaway, there's a couple of them, but the big one is that if you intentionally think about how you want to impact the world, what kind of life you want to have, and then how a business model can create cash flow to really just do the things that you want. I mean, it's totally possible. Xavier not only did it once, he did it twice, and now he's doing it again. And it's just being intentional. And I think what you need to do in order to determine how intentional being right now is check out our intentional growth assessment. It's 20 multiple choice questions. And these are going to be just some simple questions that are going to help you align what you're doing right now with what you want ultimately from the business and the life that you want to have, making sure you're growing value and that you're headed in the right direction. You're not focusing on things right now that are completely non-value creating or getting you closer to the goal of freedom and the ultimate goal that you want with the business, text the word intentional to 66866 or check out our website. The The assessment is uh, has a link on arcona.io. Otherwise, just text the word intentional to 66866 and then you'll get an email. Take the multiple choice assessment. You'll spit out a score and we've got a vision board that's two pages that'll show you how to package all the things that you want up onto one page so you can have an idea of what you're focused on and what you should be doing right now to get closer to what you want from the business in your life. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next week.